0: Hi guys, today's episode had me just loving life. Dr. Aviva Rom was here, and I was completely honored that she chose to spend time with me on this podcast. Dr. Rom, who goes by Aviva, she didn't let me call her Dr. Rom for long, um, is an herbalist, and she's a midwife, and she's an MD who came to become a doctor later in life after she had four kids and was homeschooling, and she just has a fascinating story, but her passion for empowering women to take care of themselves, to take charge of their health. And she's funny. I mean, you guys, you have to listen to this. You're going to love it. She's fantastic. She's the author of the book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. So we will talk about why it is, in fact, a revolution. And I hope you guys enjoyed this show. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete, although right now all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. I am extremely excited about our guest today. Dr. Aviva Ram is here. Hi. Hi. Yay. This was a long time in the making.
1: Yeah, that's my schedule. Thank you. I apologize. Thank you for being no. tenacious.
0: I'm just I'm so excited that we finally made it happen. It's very exciting. So, um Dr. Ram, let's start with um just talking about your childhood and you just have such a fascinating story about how you became you and got into midwifery and all the things that you do. So, let's let's just start with your childhood and who who Fat Minnie is. <laughs>
1: Minnie. <laughs> okay, first call me Viva. Please Aviva. call me Aviva. And um, Fat Minnie was this woman, it's a terrible name. She was a, a, not disabled, but kind of a very sedentary woman who lived on the first floor of the apartment building next to mine. And she was always the one. Out there, you kids, don't throw the ball at the wall, you know, kind of like yelling at us. And but in a way, she all she had an eye on us. And we kids in the neighborhood, we had a name for anyone and everyone, and she was fat Minnie, um, and really we could the mini Minnie in itself was enough because she wasn't Minnie. She was loud though. She was a powerful woman. <laughs> um so yeah, so I grew up in a housing project in New York City. And I have to tell you, when I told my husband, who's from Buckhead in Atlanta that I grew up in housing project. He was like, cause we really you know this hippie family. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's so nice of you to identify with low income people. And I'm like, no, I'm not identifying with, I'm not saying this to be cool. I grew up in a for real housing project. And so finally about like 10 years and a few kids into our marriage, we were in New York and I'm like, you know what guys, why don't you just come see where I grew up? And there's this expression they have in London, which is gobsmacked where you just kind of like right, hit right. your mouth. Right. Like, they were just gobsmacked. Actually, my husband's jaw was just like slack jaw, and his, his face was just like expressionless. And then he just said, I am so sorry. I will never, never say to you that you didn't really grow up in a housing project again. So I had this really interesting upbringing. It was a housing project in Flushing, Queens. It's still there. It's called Pomonok Housing. When I grew up there, it wasn't as rough as it is now, but it was probably the coolest place to grow up in so many ways. Cause we always had people like Minnie sitting outside Us kids could play outside all the time. A lot of us had parents who were, you know, working two jobs. My mom was a single mom and, um, it was the most multicultural environment. It was amazing. We, all the kids in the school in the neighborhood, went to the same neighborhood elementary school. So, um, it was in many ways a rough place to grow up and in many ways a place of uh, tremendous resilience and um, social tolerance, too. Right. And so for me, um, I grew up in this environment. But at the same time, you know, as as wonderful as I'm making it sound, you know, kids were smoking cigarettes in third grade, having sex <laughs> in fourth grade. I am not exaggerating. And I was kind of like the geeky science fair spelling bee kid. Like, I really entered those kind of things. Were and you won a title tale? I wasn't a tattletale. Okay. I did get asked to be a hall monitor in second grade <laughs> and I thought that was really cool until I realized it wasn't really cool. No, I wasn't a tattletale. Um I actually got bullied in school um for being smart. I was um, pretty outspoken. Um, yeah, no, I wasn't the tattletale kid. I was just different. And my mom made my own clothes and my grandma made my own clothes and they liked to dress us, you know, dress me in nice clothes and so I dressed a little different than the kids in there. I dressed cool but just a little different. Sometimes right. had a little bit nicer things and, um, and was often the teacher's pet because I was you pretty smart. Yeah, I was a smarty pants. And so the <laughs> teacher would often ask me to tutor other kids in the class who maybe came from, like, we had this one girl, Marissa, who came in in um, second grade didn't speak any English. She was from Puerto Rico. And so, you know, the teacher asked me to sit next to her and help her because I already had finished like second grade by, the first month. I'm not joking. Cause I had asked for extra homework over the summer between first and second grade <laughs> and my mom didn't want me to skip grades. So I didn't. So yeah. So kind of fast forward, um, one great way for me to get out of that environment and also, you know, added to the background, kind of like what made me, me, my mom had me really young. Um, she was 18 when she had me and well, almost 19, but 18. And she, um, really kind of in many ways gave up her own, um, dreams to have me. And I think she really overlaid a lot of pressure on me to be successful and not Mm -hmm. let that happen to me. And, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure on me to achieve and, you know, being a teacher's pet wasn't a bad thing in a neighborhood where, um, you know, sort of, there weren't a lot of ways out, and academics was certainly one of those. Did you sense
0: that like very early? Did you just have a sense?
1: I did. Yeah, I did. I was, I really was in kind of survival mode from a really young age. And, um, I can remember even like being six, seven, eight, you know, having these like very high achieving fantasies and ideas of how I wanted my life to be outside of that environment. Mm -hmm. And, um, Things got rough when I got older, living in this um, kind of like two-bedroom, really, really tiny uh, apartment with my mom and my brother. I shared a bunk bed till I was 14 in this really small, I'm not joking, apartment. And, um, you know, the older I got and as we started to get into like the crack era, the neighborhood also got scarier. And um, by ninth grade, I had gotten accepted into uh, New York has these three specialized high schools and they get some like I want to say it's like 40 or something create some like tens of thousands of applications every year for something like 6,000 slots and you take a test and if you get in you get placed into one of those schools and I got into the high achieving science school which was perfect for me but it was a two-hour commute each way from where I lived to the Bronx and that year was a very stressful year for me emotionally with my mom living at home making this two-hour commute I started out uh, in ninth grade, around a hundred pounds, I finished that year at about one hundred and forty pounds. I got sick a lot. I was very anxious and stressed out. It was a very high pressure school. I was on the debate team, which is still considered the national champion debate team. It was like really pressure, pressure, pressure. And some of it was internal pressure, but a lot of it was just, you know, the demands of the environment and how do I get out of this housing project. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. So, and I heard uh, about,
0: you really like Dunkin' Donuts. Then we, yeah, we were kind of spirit I, animals in that regard.
1: I mean, I didn't like Dunkin' Donuts, but it was <laughs> a. It, I had two choices. I could take um, a bus. I, I walked. Had especially in the cooler months when it was dark early still in the morning, I had to walk through this really big public park and then up this avenue to a bus stop, and then I could either catch the express bus to the Bronx or I could catch a bus to take me to. A series of trains to get to the Bronx. And so, um, I was getting up at like five in the morning and by the time I got to the bus stop, it was like five 30 Dunkin' Donuts, maybe six, whatever it was. Dunkin' Donuts was open. And so every morning my breakfast was a Dunkin' Donuts. I didn't drink coffee. So I got Dunkin' Donuts and an orange juice. And then at lunch, um, you know, I, whatever I had at the school lunch or brought with me or got from the lunch truck. And then I got in the habit of buying a Snickers bar because I had debate team after school, It almost feels like I'm talking about another person when I talk about this (laughs) because it's so hard to fathom. Even now, you know, there are times when I've driven from the airport in Queens up through the Bronx with my husband because we live north of the city in Massachusetts. He's like, he'll sometimes say, I cannot believe you made this commute as a 14-year-old. It's incredible. And, um, And then I was sometimes leaving school. So I'd have the Snickers bar. We'd have debate teams. Sometimes we'd have pizza. Then I'd make the long trek home, often get home by seven or eight o'clock, then have two or three hours of homework to do. And, you know, so I was living on this kind of fumes of my diet that year and a lot of stress. And by, by about, I think it was maybe December, November, December of that year, I was, I'm getting into like physical fights with my mom. It was pretty bad. Like, if you know me now, you'd, you'd be like, I can't believe that was you, you know? Right. And, um, I was just getting, it was just getting like this town ain't big enough for the both of us kind of situation with my mom. And I wrote a letter to Johns Hopkins university. Cause at that time it was still really a letter and a postage stamp and said, look, I really want to go to medical school. I'm smart. Can I just skip high school and college? And can you just take me right to the medical school? And I'll tell you, I wish I had the letter Meredith from the person who wrote me back because bless someone's heart as y'all like to say in the South, well, right. someone, someone actually wrote me back and That's said, "That's incredible." I know it, it, that whoever that person was, was like, if there are guardian angels, that person was it. And they said, you're too young. We can't take you. There weren't even like the seven year fast track for college medical school programs that I was asking to skip high school and right. college kind of like not very timid there. <laughs> and, um, she said, you know what? There is a school in Massachusetts that takes young people who are gifted, maybe you could apply there. She sent me the, you know, the information about the school and I did, and I got a scholarship. I got an interview. I got accepted. I got a scholarship and there I was at 15 off for college. So did so you, that,
0: did you do that all on your own? Um, like well,
1: I, yeah, I did the applying. And then when I, I think I might've gotten the interview letter. That was when I asked my mom if I wow. could could interview and she was very supportive. I mean, we had a very tumultuous relationship, but she was very supportive And and this was the kind of thing that she would be supportive of because for her, it was validating and important for her psychologically that her kid was going to go off to college, right? It meant that I was not going to like get pregnant early and get into some kind of crazy thing in my neighborhood. right? And so I did, I left at 15, um, finished, I basically sort of scraped my way through that last year of um, my high school Uh, which was ninth grade, and then off I was to college that September. Wow. Yeah.
0: And so you did not go straight to medical school.
1: No, I have a very circuitous route. If you've ever seen there's this comic, like a graphic that says, what people think is success, and it's a straight arrow. Right. I mean, like what success really is, and it's like, you know, it looks like Spaghetti Junction. Right. Um, down over there, that, and, uh, where's 85? 85, where you 85 see Spaghetti to 85, Junction. 85, yeah, yeah, down yeah. in Atlanta. Um, so, yeah, I went to college. I started that September at 15. And I, within three months, was a vegetarian, tree-hugging, herbal-studying, midwifery-studying, bead-making kid with dreadlocks, um, still doing my classes. But in, within that year, I quit college, apprenticed myself to a midwife in Boston, and started the rest of my life. Um, actually met my husband, the man who became my husband that year, and then spent the next 20 some odd years as a home birth midwife, herbalist, homeschooling mom, before I then mm, cycled back around. It was like about 10 years in the making that I cycled back around to the idea of becoming a physician. There was something inside me that just still really wanted to do that. But you know in 1981 when I was becoming a vegetarian and learning about herbs there wasn't the term alternative medicine didn't even exist then um the first naturopathic school was just opening acupuncture was really just new on the horizon in the United States so there weren't really an, any avenues clearly for somebody like me except for being very outside of the box and conventional medicine at that time I I would have been you know just of a, a, a majorly square peg in a very round hole at that time.
0: So what changed? I mean, you were so sure you wanted to go to medical school. What, what shifted in you to set you on that path? Or was that always kind of your idea of medicine?
1: But the alternatives? Yeah. No, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon and, you know, win a Nobel prize. And I'm not kidding when I say right. that, I really thought, no, that I believe it's gonna, you. and like really, you know, do something like that. And, um, I started reading different books. I think at that point on the market, there were just a few, but there was a book called Circle of Poison. There was a book called How the Other Half Dies by Susan George, who was an economist who wrote about um, the impact of, um, of agricultural economics on people's nutrition, survival, poverty. Uh, Circle of Poison was about how pesticides that were at that point just now in the late 70s, early 80s being banned in the United States like DDT Mm -hmm. were being shipped to other countries where those bans and restrictions didn't exist, often poor countries. But those poor countries were growing things like our bananas and our pineapples and our oranges and much of our produce and other products and being shipped back for our imports. so we were unwittingly importing these toxic um, agents back in our food, not to mention at that time there were some pretty astonishing things that happened. For example, some history that a lot of people just wouldn't even imagine, but for example, um, such poverty on sugar plantations in places like Guatemala that were growing Sugarcane for Coca Cola. That the conditions were so bad that people were doing were, workers were were protesting and boycotting and revolting and were being murdered. And uh-huh. um, there were incidences where young kids, because they were so poor, uh, they didn't have resources in their families on the farms that they were working on, would do things like store pesticides. These very same kind of pesticides, or herbicides, or fungicides, or rodenticides in Coca-Cola bottles and kids were drinking them. And, you know, when you're 15, you're, you're really, um, you have the potential to be really radical and very ideological and idealistic. And so all of this to me as a 15 year old, um, and then I started learning the connection between some of the, um, agricultural companies and pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And I made a very big life decision which I have not tempered that decision or my politics in any way. I have tempered my judgment around people's choices, but my philosophical um, commitment to environment and health politics are the same. But at that point in my life, I said, you know what, if I'm going to be knowledgeable and educated about these things. I can't be a hypocrite and use these things. So I literally went from the age of 15 to the age of 40 um, something without ever having a soft drink, uh, almost having no sugar, wow. really trying not to buy anything. And it's, it's, you can't escape it. I mean, you really can't escape it. But doing my best to not overtly contribute to the pharmaceutical industry with purchases um, to the agricultural industry. I made an early commitment to organic agriculture, not just purchasing, but growing. Um, Yeah, so it became a way of life for me. And ultimately, when I decided to go to medical school, it was a a kind of a, a perfect storm, if you will, of timing and decision on how can I be more influential, be more outspoken, and have more of a credential that's trustworthy behind me to start to make changes, not just for individual women and their families, but on a larger scale as well. So that when I'm writing about antibiotic overuse in, in the animal industry that ends up in our food, or when I'm writing about um, using alternatives to antibiotics because antibiotic overuse and resistance is the biggest global health problem we're actually facing. I'm doing that not just as an herbalist or midwife, which has its own entire legitimacy and credibility, but is still fringe enough that it doesn't get the same traction as when a Yale MD says that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So when you decided not to contribute to this, you know, sugar culture, it, it, was it a natural progression to go and and become a midwife? Cause you were like, how did you start delivering
1: babies? <laughs> it kind of, it kind of all happened at once. So I made this decision, uh, because I met this guy, well, I didn't make this decision. I met this guy who was like just super hot to me at the time. I thought he was so hot and <laughs> did he so- have dreads too? He had long hair. His family is um, Mexican-Mayan ancestry, and, um, like, he was beautiful and uh, very, like, alternative hippie. And he was the one who introduced me to uh, a lot of these concepts, and he handed me a copy of a book called Spiritual Midwifery, And that was when I was 15. And that book was a turning point for me in terms of it was really the first alternative medicine book I got. It was before I got any herbal book or anything else. And so my awareness, if you will, was was, um, shifting around um, birth and food and medicine really all at the same time. Interestingly, at that time, he also gave me um, a science, scientific paper that was written by a gentleman named Stanislav Groth, who wrote a book on, uh, an article called The Perinatal Roots of War. He's a fascinating character that we could have a whole episode chatting about just, (laughs) just in and of that. But he was a psychiatrist who had done work in Czechoslovakia, where he was from, On um, LSD research, he was actually hired by the U.S. government eventually to do psychedelic research. It's a very complicated story. But as he was doing this research, started witnessing people experiencing what appeared to be remnants of birth trauma. And he ended up writing a paper on how the um, methods by which we're born and the the sort of, um, if you will, milieu of our birth, has an impact on some of our psychology and our development as human beings. And this is actually now really bearing out, interestingly, in the medical Mm -hmm. literature as we look at microbiome, epigenetics, all these other factors. But again, to that 15-year-old who was so fascinated by this idea of making a difference and taking care of my planet and other people um, in a different way than medicine uh, opened me up to, this idea that being a midwife and having an influence on how babies are born as a part of not just their birth, but how maybe their whole life unfolds psychologically was very appealing to me. So I left school. Um, that man who I thought was so hot actually was friends with the man who became my husband. <laughs> and between the two of them, I actually met my first midwife and, uh, started going to prenatal visits with her and births with her. And, um, That started me on my road to becoming a midwife. And then the herbal medicine piece really kind of happened at the same time in that I was looking for alternative ways to treat myself. But also as I learned things, other people were interested, you know, classmates, friends I had at the time. And then as I started attending births, um, I found that the moms and dads who were interested in having their babies more naturally then also naturally wanted to think about ways to maybe treat morning sickness instead of a pharmaceutical or treat their baby when their baby got an ear infection instead of an antibiotic. So it kind of just one thing led to another. And interestingly, you know, I think what was really interesting too, is I mentioned that during that first year of high school, I had gained 40 pounds, but I also started to get sick a lot. I had colds, sore throats, um, strep, uh, a lot of anxiety. I had terrible hay fever. Um, I think I was probably anemic based, you know, when I think back on the signs and symptoms I had and the diet I was eating, um, within that year, all of that went away. I mean, wow. Uh, knock wood. I have used an antibiotic one time. I'm 51. I have used an antibiotic one time since I was 14 years old, um, and went off to school, you know, or that year between 14 and 15. And, um, that was when I got, I got, Sick in medical in my residency because you know you just don't get any sleep and you're exposed to stuff all the time. Lots was, of
0: cooties oh that God. was residency cooties, yeah.
1: Oh <laughs> gosh, yeah. Um,
0: so one of the stories that I've heard you tell, um, as a midwife was when you had a doctor who wanted to force an episiotomy on one of your patients.
1: Oh my gosh, yes, I love uh, this story. I had a client who uh, was actually a mom of right, it, client,
0: you had to call them clients because yes, it was all the politics around.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, as a home birth midwife, legally, I couldn't have patients cause I was an illegal home birth midwife basically. And this was actually, I lived in Michigan for three years. My husband was the pre- uh, principal of a high school and which is just hilarious because you know, think back on our background, but, um, <laughs> he had a family in the school. The mom wanted to have a home birth just terribly wanted to have a home birth. She had had a very traumatic um, experience with her previous pregnancy in that she lost the baby at eight months old due to something called RH incompatibility, which actually made her too high risk for home birth medically. So she just implored me to come to the hospital with her. And so I did, I did some prenatal care with her just so she felt like she was getting a little bit more of the support and care that she really wanted, but she was legitimately high risk and needed to have a lot of medical testing along the way. So when she went into labor, I was with her at the hospital and long story short, by the time she's pushing, the OB has come in and this man is like, he's so huge. He's a, like, he's like a linebacker on a football team. You know, what
0: is with OBs? I don't giant know. And having giant hands.
1: This man was gigantic and he was so gigantic <laughs> that his, his, um, his scrubs were like high waters. I remember like they didn't even have pants that fit him. <laughs> and I remember asking one of the nurses what his name was. And I think, I think his name was Dr. Brown and, or Dr. Green. And she said, his name is, I said, what's his first name? And she said, doctor, <laughs> it was like <laughs> the barrier was there. And keep in mind, I was like a home birth midwife. I was not a doctor at the time. And, uh, so this woman is pushing her baby out and she's had so many interventions and she's having to be monitored and the one thing she was like Aviva I really don't want an episiotomy if I don't have to have one. And she's pushing and Dr. Green or Brown whatever it was picks up his scissors and approaches her perineum to do an episiotomy and I looked at him and I I you know abruptly said she really doesn't want an episiotomy and she's been through so much it's kind of just the one thing she doesn't want and he said Uh, he looked up at me just like bluntly said, I will do an episiotomy if I damn well, please. And I don't know, Meredith, I don't know what came over me, but, um, I just stuck my hand on her perineum and I said, well, then you're going to have to cut through me to get through her, get to her. Oh my gosh. And (laughs) he just looked up at me. I mean, it's kind of just, I think maybe ghetto going into action. I don't know, or mama (laughs) bear or something. I, I, I just went for it. And, um, he put the scissors down and baby came out with an intact perineum and was fine. And interestingly, he, he, um, asked the mom the next day about me. And then within a couple of months had been wa- midwives in his practice. He was so taken back, of course, nurse midwives, but yeah, that was a right. that's that so was awesome. cra- crazy story.
0: I love it. I love yeah. it. It makes I'm like, yeah, it's go Aviva. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: That's, 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 right. when, that's when your adrenal overdrive is. <laughs> a valuable tool.
0: Well, that is a good segue. So um, after after you had four children, you decided, and homeschooling them, you decided it would be a good idea to go to medical school.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Add that. And not only any medical school, but Yale. And um, I love how you feel to me like you were like the Aaron Brockovich of medicine, right? You were like in the trenches, doing all this work, but then you were like, I've got to go Get my MD so people will really hear me.
1: Yes, and, and me, I love that. It was yeah. So people will hear—not so much so people will hear me, but what what I have to say right. will have influence. And it was really there's a word that I don't remember ever hearing back then, but scalability, right? Like how can we do something that has the biggest impact? You know, really, even at the time, it wasn't even so much. I mean, yes, I definitely wanted to make change, but. I also saw that more women were becoming midwives, more women were getting into the herbal world. And so there was more choice for women who were looking for alternatives outside of the box. But what happens to people like that client who need to go into the system? And I realized that those women needed a voice for them in the system. And they needed someone like me who could be writing and influencing the system so that ultimately, it wasn't even such a scary system to go into. So yeah, um, Yale was the most progressive of the medical schools that I interviewed at. I fell in love with it. And they really deeply honor learning and older students. And yeah, I mean, I got all of the conventional medical training, but I felt really respected there. And I had a tremendous amount of respect for the, um, people that I was learning from. So there was a lot of mutuality and, um, they weren't afraid. You know, it's interesting because I, in the, um, around 2000, I had a book published on vaccinations and I'm not anti-vaccine by any means actually, but I do feel like parents need to know the whole story and the whole story has some ugly parts to it, ugly truths that were hidden Mm -hmm. and need to be able to make an informed and educated decision and need to have the right to make a decision without being told they're not going to get medical care or they might get evaluated by social services and have their kids taken away. So I wrote this book and a number of colleagues of mine who weren't in the medical world said, do not put that book on your resume or your application. And I said, well, I mean, by now the internet had come around. I said, if somebody wants to find out that I wrote that book, they're going to find out that I wrote that book. It's on the Google. It's on the Google. And, um, I, uh, so I did, I included it. I didn't want to be dishonest and I really didn't want to go to a school that didn't, um, didn't accept me, but I actually got accepted to eight of the 10 medical schools I applied to. And Yale was where I really wanted to be
0: you really are a smarty pants. And I mean that in like the most respectful just way. A it's so awesome. <laughs> like it's you. just so rare to know. I mean, to know someone just so, so very smart. And I mean that in the most respectful way.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, so, I'm just really kind of geeky is more what it is, but thank you. <laughs> awesome. It's awesome.
0: So let's talk about your book. I don't, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about this. So the adrenal thyroid revolution. So what, what is the revolution in this book?
1: Yeah. The revolution is a few things. You know, when I was writing the book, I came across this quote early on that even now gives me chills when I say it. And it's when sleeping women wake mountains move. And it's a, it's a Chinese proverb. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself of all the women, and it still kind of actually makes me get a little bit emotional. Um, but all the women who in the extreme who are struggling with fatigue, overwhelm, autoimmune diseases, um, depression, uh, all the things that keep us from living our best lives. And I thought, wow, I mean, if you could give those women back or help those women even more appropriately to say, take back their energy and take back their lives. What a revolution, right? I mean, what could those women do in this right. world Power of women in this world? And so that's one revolution. The revolution is actually the women themselves being a force of revolution, because women are such a force for change in all of our communities and cultures. I mean, look at um, look at you know uh, Black Lives Matter. That's moms. You know, there are so many movements. Look at Erin Brockovich. Look at Robin O'Brien. These are women who are just changing the face of industry and agriculture and so many things. And um, men are amazing at doing it too, but women have a way of doing it that I think is particularly unique and community building. Yeah. So that that's one piece of the revolution. Another piece of the revolution is it's time for medicine to change. It's time for medicine, which is built on thousands of year old beliefs that women don't count. And when I say that, I don't mean that with some kind of philosophical or romantic you know, feminist ideology. I mean, quite literally, that the foundations of Western medicine were based on principles that said things like uh, Bacon or uh, Descartes that women and the earth. Uh, are basically resources for men to plunder and rape and use as they will. And those words, plunder and rape, are in this actual original language when you go back to it. And these are the tenets upon which Western medicine has evolved over the past many centuries. And when you think about currently Western medicine, there are tremendous medical biases that exist against women that lead women to— here's one astonishing statistic— 5,000 more women than men die a year of heart attacks in the hospital. And that's because our pain is typically ignored, minimized, relegated to anxiety. So if you're a woman in the hospital and you report chest pain, you're more likely to be given a sleeping medication or an anxiety medication than to get a cardiac workup than a man. And this, this kind of (laughs) of bias that exactly the examples of this bias under treatment of pain when a woman is in the hospital uh, in the emergency department because she has a ovarian cyst that's rupturing or a torsion. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so the revolution is it's about time for Western medicine to as, as an industry and as an institution and as a helping profession to sit the F up and wake up and listen to women and take care of women. Um, so that's another piece of the revolution.
0: So no no small goals there. (laughs) So two words in the title that are very confusing, adrenal and thyroid. So let's talk. I, I really did not know what in the world this was until a couple years ago. And and when I started reading about it, so this is a revolution very much in, in its own sense because most people don't have a clue what this is even about, like what our adrenal glands are, and why, probably because the medical establishment hasn't bothered to make it a focus.
1: Yeah, I actually begged my publisher, I begged him. He's been in publishing for 20 years. He's head of, uh, or vice president of publishing at Harper One. And I was like, please, Gideon, can we not put that in the title? Because nobody's going to know that that's what they have or what it is. He's like, no, 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 trust me on it. And you know, I think well, it because is you're raising support. awareness. Exactly. What, yeah. And said, there are people who are going to get it. And this is, this groundswell will happen. Um, to me, what I wanted to call it was the, um, over overwhelm epidemic or something like that. And, Because what I started to look at in my practice was, what are the symptoms that women are experiencing and why are women experiencing? Why is one in eight women experiencing a fertility challenge? Why is one in four women on an antidepressant or anxiety medication? Why why is autoimmune disease affecting 24 million people? And why is it one of the top 10 leading causes of death amongst women? Why? Why are these things? Why are women who are in their 20s experiencing significant enough brain fog to actually have cognitive dysfunction. What is going on? And I started looking at really what I kept kind of looking under the hood going, something connects all this and it doesn't make sense. Why are so many women having thyroid problems? For example, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. And as I started to look under the hood, I found the common denominator, not of a hundred percent of things, a hundred percent of the time, but significantly was a little gland that sits on top of our kidneys called the adrenal gland. And even that is kind of a a little bit of a limited way of looking at it. The adrenal gland is part of a system called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or more simply put the stress response axis. It starts in our brain. It goes to these little glands. Glands are just organs that produce hormones or chemicals. They secrete something. And, uh, these, t- these glands, we have one on each kidney. They're so tiny. I remember the first time I was in a kidney surgery after years of talking about the adrenal glands as an herbalist. Um, I saw them, and I thought, that's it. You know, they're so small and they, are <laughs> like, why
0: are they not huge with a flower? on? Them I know like, they should be
1: flashing like a, like an emergency hazard sign or something. Right. Um, but they're really teeny, two little tiny pyramid shaped blobs of fat that you, you know, it's like one of those towns in North Georgia. Oh, you, you blink and you miss it, you know? <laughs> We have those towns in upstate New York and Massachusetts too. Um, and yet these the chemicals that these produce, one is called adrenaline, which we've probably all heard of, adrenaline rushes, and the other is a hormone called cortisol, truly literally control almost every cell in our body. They control the timing with which those cells are orchestrated which is really important because you want to make sure that your digestion is happening in the morning and not in the middle of the night. If you have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> you want to make sure that your immune cells are kicking in to keep you protected during the daytime, but doing their job of detoxifying at night. And you want to make sure that your hormonal cycles are regular, that your thyroid is doing its job. And and these two chemicals, these, this hormone and this neurotransmitter really are orchestrating all of that. And we think of cortisol, those of us who have heard of it, as the stress hormone, but really it's the survival hormone. And when all is well in our world, or even when we have little bumps, but we can rebound from them pretty well, those hormones and chemicals are doing their exact perfect job of keeping us healthy, keeping us alert, keeping us able to digest, keeping our blood sugar regulated, keeping our hormones going, keeping our metabolism revved up so we're, you know, digesting and we're burning calories. But when we're under too much stress for too long, as about 70% of Americans say that they are, and even about 25% of Americans say they're under extreme debilitating stress, um, what starts to happen is these beneficial responses actually backfire. So for example, here are a few simple examples. When you are under stress, your body goes into fight or flight. It's a primitive response that's initially meant for us to outrun a predator or be able to kill the predator. Or and I'm a
0: predator. fighter. I just stand... Yeah fight.
1: <laughs> you can tell I do too, right? Like I'm not the perineum. I'm not the flight kind usually. Um, and there's actually a third form of response, which is freeze. So there's fight, flight, or freeze. Freeze is kind of what an animal does, like a deer in the headlights. Right, but human beings just... actually have that too. There are human beings who just panic in the moment and they like they get immobilized. They can't move or speak.
0: That's totally so, my mom. Bless, sure. bless her heart. Bless her heart. But in a in a panic situation, she's freeze.
1: And we need sure. all those people, right? Yeah. We need the bunny rabbits and the deer. We need the hawks and the eagles and we need the doves, right? We need yeah. everybody in the ecosystem and we all contribute socially in better or worse ways based on like I'm the kind of person who fights, but I'm also the person who could interrupt people really easily in a conversation you know, I have to practice listening, you know, so we all have our our pluses and minuses.
0: Well, I think my um, mom had to freeze because my dad and I were too busy fighting. So she was just like, I'm just going to stand here while these two crazy people.
1: Well, and that's really interesting because the adrenal response isn't only just a physical response. We develop adaptive behaviors along the way that sometimes then backfire too. So for example, when you have to fight or flight, fight or flee, Um, your body needs to release a lot of blood sugar so that your muscles get really energized. And so it does that by producing cortisol. It also makes your heart rate go faster and more blood and oxygen go to your brain. It does that by the adrenaline. But imagine this. If you're under stress all the time, and you're pumping out too much blood sugar all the time, you can get high blood sugar. And the other thing your body's doing is pumping out a lot of insulin naturally to to mop up that blood sugar after the emergency's over. But if your body thinks you're always in a state of DEFCON 4, you're constantly pumping out blood sugar. Your body gets tired of pumping out insulin all the time because the pancreas is like, okay, enough of this business. And if you're always revving up your heart rate and your blood pressure to get more blood to your brain, you can actually end up with heart rate imbalances. You can end up with chronic hypertension. And because your brain is making, these hormones are making you hypervigilant, hypervigilance on overdrive is anxiety. It's the inability to turn off and go to sleep. If you're overly stimulated, you can't even really sit and focus. And that's just one example of like a few of these things backfiring. There are about a hundred things that can happen in your immune system, in your cognitive function, in your thyroid, in your women's hormones um, that can really become kind of a domino or snowball effect that in the long run can lead to some pretty serious medical diagnoses, but along the way can lead to a lot of the daily things that we sort of maybe just assume are normal or are ignoring or are living with like aches and pains or getting sick more often than we think we should or never getting sick but getting sick on the first day of vacation, tanking your vacation, snapping at our kids or our partners when we don't even know why we're snappy, irregular periods, PMS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and on the road to things that may not seem as scary and severe as, let's say, dementia or diabetes, which can happen in the long, long run, but things like thyroid problems or insulin resistance metabolic syndrome, um, gaining too much weight around our middle. All of these are kind of like a, a number line, if you will, with little mild things that happen at first to, as we get older, the compounding effects of these becoming actual diseases and diagnoses.
0: So what, what is, what are some things that we can do to a, prevent this, or B, kind of unravel it, if, if that's what we suspect is going on.
1: That's a great word, unraveling it. I love that. So good. You're going to hear me saying that. And good. It yeah, so prevention is really about getting a little bit more rhythmic in our lives and paying attention to how we're feeling. Are we sleeping? Are we eating? Are we taking time to hit the pause button? And... Slow down, and that may sound either romanticized or it may—you may be listening and going, "Yeah, easy for her to say, but I can't do that." Um, I I don't think that's
0: easy for you to say with four kids and medical practice. No, you—it's
1: pretty (laughs) cool. And I really, people ask me, you know, how do you do what you do? And I will say, it really is kind of thinking about a piece of elastic, right? If you have a piece of elastic and you stretch it. And you let it go and you stretch it and you let it go and you stretch it and you let it go. You can get wear out of a good skirt with an elastic waistband for decades, but if you stretch it and 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 you never let it go, eventually elastic gives out. And it's sort of a metaphor for us, although with elastic, once it's gone, you can never get it back. With us, there's a lot you can do to still rebound, even if you're pretty far stretched out. But it is that push and pause push and pause, right? We have to make sure that even if we're in an intense period of doing things and really busy, um, working hard, managing home, managing young kids, taking care of elderly parents, trying to pay the bills and keep, you know, keep things going that we do take some time to stop. And that stopping can be anything that's nourishing for you. I mean, yes, you can meditate. Meditation is great for healing, these imbalances and numerous studies show how even just 10, 15 minutes a day of meditation can reset your cortisol. But it can be something fun. Like, watch, you know, one of my most fun things that I do when I need to unwind is I actually go onto YouTube and I watch stand up comedy. Like, I love, <laughs> well, it's not actually always stand up because carpool karaoke is technically not stand up, it's sitting down. But <laughs> I love carpool karaoke, I love putting on you know, just goofy Jimmy Fallon, um, watching Mm -hmm. him do like that thing he does with, you know, that wheel of music where he's singing crazy songs of people to, you know, imitation, imitating voices. And uh, I like goofy movies. I love zombie movies for me. Zombie movies are a great release for whatever reason they make me laugh. I don't know why, (laughs) you know, it can be walking in nature. It can be getting on the floor and playing with your kids. It can be a a five minute, you know, bust it out, crank up the music, get sweaty, dance, party, you know, in your clothes or in your underwear, whatever it is that just is so, it can be a shower, it can be a massage. Um, But anything that really gets us to reset and enjoy and laugh and relax. That is probably the most important thing. And if it's 15 minutes a day when you get home from work, at the end of the day, if you have a job outside the house, get your kids involved, get your partner involved. If it's just you, do it. But there are some studies that show that even just 15 minutes of doing something fun after a workday, before you get dinner going, can reset your cortisol for the evening. Um, keeping your blood sugar balanced is really important. A lot of us, because we get so busy, we're skipping meals, or we're eating—you know—we're eating the Dunkin' Donuts and the coffee for breakfast, or the organic equivalent, but it's still just as much sugar and not not nourishing. Then by ten o'clock in the morning, or it may be four o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, you're having that sugar crash. That sends. DEF CON 4 messages to that adrenal stress response system because it is hardwired from the beginning of our time on the planet to recognize famine or low blood sugar as an emergency, Mm -hmm. which is why a lot of women are not eating very much and and gaining weight. And they go to the doctor and the doctor looks at them like they're lying or insinuates that they're lying. Like, how can you only be eating that and be gaining 30 pounds? But it's because your body's going... Low calories, you know, what is it, danger Will Robinson, warning Will Robinson, um, something's wrong, we got to store that energy, oops, let's pack on a lot of belly fat, like a camel storing food for crossing the desert, because we don't know when that nourishment's going to come in next, which is why a lot of us get that belly fat that's hard to, to get off. Right. So yeah.
0: is there is there a when you say not eating? So I've read a lot about insulin resistance because I suspect that's been a big issue of mine for. Mm-hmm. I, I was a big drinker for a, a long time and <laughs> just basically treated my body like a trash can and yeah. have come out of that.
1: And so and, brave and, of you to <laughs> say that right out. Like I want to applaud and to say kudos to you oh, for dude. being able to just say. It.
0: Yeah, it's it's just a fact. <laughs>
1: I hear. So,
0: you know, in, in trying to unravel, I'll use that word again, trying to unravel my own, you know, health, I've read a lot about insulin resistance and the benefits of, of fasting for, you know, methodically fasting, not just yes. not eating. So, do, is there a distinction? And maybe that's too big of a topic.
1: No, but. no, we can totally talk about it. So, yeah, it's a fascinating area. And a lot of cultures, have um, fasting built into um, either their religious practices or their food practices. For example, my best friend's husband is from Ethiopia and he doesn't eat any dairy products or any meat. Um, I think it's three days a week. Uh, in the Islamic culture, there's Ramadan, right? There's basically fasting all day until dinner right. um, for a month. Uh, the Jewish tradition has multiple fasts built in throughout the year. This is very common. Um, Buddhists fast. And um, so the idea of fasting is actually thousands of years old. And it's probably based historically on times when food was naturally leaner in our environments versus times when food was naturally more abundant. The problem is, is that when we fast, if we break that fast with lots and lots of carbs or sugar or we eat too much when we break that fast, We are genetically hardwired for something called feast or famine. And so in times of famine, our bodies want to store energy. That's why cortisol makes us store fat. It makes us store calories. It's why why cortisol turns down the thyroid because it makes you have a low thyroid, so you're not metabolizing energy that's just not available in your environment. But when we're in constant times of abundance, we store all that excess energy. It's a complex mechanism. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is think about fasting and think about it, is it beneficial for that individual? And how can we do it in a way that is beneficial? What I like to think of as sort of biologically or evolutionarily what we're programmed for is to really not eat after sunset, And not eat again, usually, until we've hunted and caught our food the next day, right? Traditionally, uh, if you think about it, uh, before agriculture and then even early into agriculture, and even how people live when they're living close to the biorhythms of the planet before electricity, we weren't going to be cooking food and eating food past when we had daylight, um, we pretty much started to shut down our fires, conserve our fuel, conserve our candles. Um, when it got dark, even you can even read a book like little house on the Prairie. books, like little house on the prairie. And when it got dark, they were getting into bed, right. They didn't have extra energy to burn. And then when they got up in the morning, it wasn't like everybody just gathered around the breakfast table. No, you took care of the animals. You maybe had to go get the eggs from the chickens. Uh, it was a process. So breakfast may have happened. You know, later in the morning, after the chores were done, right. So if you think about that, if you think about in the winter time, really not eating between, let's say, six o'clock and maybe eight o'clock the next morning, or even even six or seven o'clock the next morning, you are getting a built-in intermittent fast. Mm-hmm. That is what is natural, and outside of pregnant women breastfeeding moms, and sometimes diabetics who may need to eat more later in the day, uh, in the evening, to get that extra little bit of, of um, blood sugar steadiness before an evening medication. Um, most people really benefit from that kind of a natural, or if you want to call it intermittent fast. So in my pr- medical practice and in my book also, I really do encourage people to not eat during those hours. Now, I will say this, because I had written the book And then I went to Europe for the first time and I spent a couple of weeks divided between Italy and Spain. And it kind of blew the whole not eating until, you know, (laughs) after seven out of the water. I mean, people eat there at eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night and they'll eat, you know, they'll start an eight o'clock dinner and eat that eight o'clock dinner until 10 o'clock at night with alcohol and bread and everything. But I think that people are, you know, eating communally and eating slowly like that is very different than gobbling down a meal at 8 o'clock at night that's got, you know, 1,200 calories because we're eating a Big Mac and fries. And while well, you're court. completely
0: stressed out with the kids right,
1: screaming. Right, while you stressed out and in front of the TV. And, mm-hmm. and studies have shown that if we eat in front of the TV, we automatically eat almost 50%, 30 to 50% more. If we're eating out of a bag of chips while watching TV, if it's a big bag of chips, we're more likely to finish that whole bag of chips. So, you know, there are complex factors that go into um why eating like that may be different. But also we did also find that when we were in Europe, we often didn't eat breakfast. We had brunch. So even there, if you're eating dinner at nine, 10 o'clock at night, you might not be eating again until... 10, 11 o'clock the next day. So, um, and what you're eating is different. Portion sizes are different. But fasting can be in that way very beneficial. And I do have some patients in my practice who have some insulin resistance and weight loss resistance where I will encourage them to extend that so that maybe their meal at dinner ends around 7, 7.30. They don't go to bed. You don't go to bed within about three hours of eating because that's important for cortisol as well. And then maybe for those few women, encourage them not to eat until about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and eat something healthy. Because if you're hungry and then you gorge out or even eat a big meal of largely carbs, because that's what we tend to want to go for, carbs and fat, right, crunchy, salty, or sweet, when we're really, really hungry, then we're actually um defeating the purpose. It's counterproductive because then your body will want to hold on to and store all those calories because it thinks you're in a famine. Most women, interestingly enough, do better. At least this is what scientific studies show and what a lot of women experience when they are actually getting more like three regular meals uh, with a little bit of carb at lunch and a little bit of carb. So carb being some kind of a whole grain or a starchy vegetable like a sweet potato. Mm -hmm. And that has actually been shown to be better for most women at regulating cortisol and losing weight. So a couple of studies have shown, for example, for women eating some form of a healthy starch at dinner and then going to bed, not within three to five hours, they actually have healthier nighttime cortisol, less sugar cravings and carb cravings the next day. And overall, over time, actually have healthier weight regulation so it's you know it's a very individual thing but there have been some really promising studies on strategic fasting for women who want to try it i usually recommend doing the intermittent style like we've talked about or picking one day a week and maybe eating lighter having broth that day soups um you know smoothie or shake but keeping it really light uh and, and seeing how that feels and then maybe do that one or two days a week, but pay attention to how you feel. Cause if you find that you're binging out when you break the fast or binging out on other days, then you're, it's counterproductive
0: well I could talk to you all day and I just think you're wonderful and I want everyone to check out the book the Adrenal thyroid revolution I have one more question for you of course okay so this podcast is called the same 24 hours which means we have the same 24 hours in our day that everyone else has but it's what we do in our 24 hours that sets us up for health and success and and happiness so what is something that you Aviva do on a daily basis that you feel contributes to making your life a better life
1: Life. Well, first of all, I want to tell you that it was the name and the um, description of your podcast that got me to say yes. I get a lot of podcast interviews and I, I turn down a lot just because I really try to honor my time and keep right. my own cortisol rhythm healthy. I, I, love, I love this idea that what you do in a day is what makes up your life. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I would say for me, probably the biggest thing, uh, maybe the two biggest things. Um, I try to laugh and my, my little grandkids make me laugh. So I try to tune in with them a lot. Um, but I think gratitude, I know that sounds so simplistic and so common, but gratitude for what I have, you know, when I'm in a busy time crunch, with a book or producing something, reframing that from like, Oh, I have to do this to, Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. I get to do this. Yes. Probably is the biggest, the biggest charge for me is just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I get to have work that I love and interact with people like you who are amazing.
0: Um, Gratitude is everything. And, And I always tell like my athletes or when I give a talk that if you can't be brave, then just be grateful because mm-hmm. you will find bravery and you will find everything you need if it comes from a place of gratitude. So, or soul it's sisters. So true.
1: On that one. It's so true. And it doesn't mean denying the crappy stuff that might be happening in your life, but if you can find one kernel. So, my husband and I actually, you know, to get very um, you know, kind of granular about this, we actually started Uh, a little practice and we don't do it every day, but we, we kind of try to have it a a general part of our life, which is when we wake up in the morning, one thing we're grateful for. And one thing we're looking forward to that day. And that just sets my day off. Right.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll post all the links to all the amazing things you're doing and your podcast, natural MD radio is fantastic. So I want everyone to check that out. And, um, I just wish you the best of luck and I'll be following all the things.
1: Thank you so much for honoring me with space and time in your life and having me on your show and sharing my work with the world.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.